also don't want to introduce our podcast anymore as Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. Like, that's... I know. It's a little weird now. It was a different it's time. It's so weird. It was a different... Well, it was a different <laughs> Kanye. I guess. Man, there's a lot of philosophy behind that, I think. Like, was, was it a different Kanye? Or was it the same Kanye? Now we just know better yeah. and know more. Yeah, it's not... Yeah, we'll definitely have to look into that for the future um it's not <laughs> it's it should represent things that we currently love which if you didn't catch on it yeah it was supposed to be like the you're right we need to switch it yeah but for now we need to talk about horror yes. movies podcast thing again and are we going to be doing this on a bi-weekly basis again who knows i can tell you one thing for sure though we are here because i have a grade that depends on it so let's get into it let's talk about why we are back for this uh i don't know uh what what's the word i'm looking for this uh sudden resurgence <laughs> it's resurgence <laughs> <laughs> of uh kitten whiskers and kanye oh, yes question mark yeah but we're just we're we're gonna start right into it um yeah so i am here because i have been taking a pop culture and communication class this semester and carmen has very generously joined with me so that i can do a podcast instead of a final paper <laughs> and verbally talk about what i've learned in this class and apply it to horror movies oh yes Carmen, do you even remember why we chose horror movies? Was it just something on our minds yeah, and we were just like... For sure, it was. I've been, I mean, personally, I've been watching like a disgusting amount of horror movies over the past few months. I've been starting to get really, really obsessed and I've been going through, it's, it's just been, it's like constantly on my mind. I've been amassing like a list of best horror in multiple sub genres. So yeah, whenever you and I meet up for coffee or something, it's like always the first thing that comes to mind because it's just what I've been doing in my free time. So yeah, I I, th I I don't know. We, you and I just always talk about movies and books and stuff. So yeah, it came up. It just randomly came up. Yeah, just uh, I think it was just kind of a natural flow of our conversation. And I was like, hey, can you do this with me? And you were like, yeah, let's do horror movie. And I was like, yeah, that's yeah, that great. Gentle suggestion, because I can't think of anything <laughs> else. Right. It's like, yeah, it's weird. I, I think um, we must have been talking about school, too, because I mean, that's all that's on I my know. mind right now is is school. I'm approaching finals week. And even though I don't have a lot of final exams mm -hmm. per se i do have a lot of final projects and final papers yeah. too um kind of going back to what i said before this is a much more agreeable option to me than doing yet another paper at some point one of us brought up cult classics as well because you're talking about popular culture and like a bunch of aspects of that and i always hear the term um, a cult classic usually associated with like horror movies and so that was also a connection that must have been made at some point. Yeah. So that being said, let's let's get into the meat of it. Like I said, this is for a pop culture class. And it probably initially sounds like a lot of 
just talking about, I don't know, whatever is showing up in People magazine and talking about like the actual media, like what medium we are consuming our culture through. But the class has actually been a lot more in depth than that. It's been more of a philosophical take on popular culture and culture in general. So the first thing that I want to do is I want to kind of give a definition of what popular culture is. And Carmen, if you have anything to add in, um, feel free to contribute because the thing about popular culture is that it's very fluid. Hmm. There's a lot of people that will say like, yeah, popular culture is basically the culture that is popular at the time. Like it's on the label there, but it's actually a lot deeper than that. And there's a lot of movement to it because what popular culture really is, is the push and pull dynamic between the people in power and the corporations in power and the commodities that they are producing and the way that the masses take those commodities and give them their own meaning so we can't say that, Did like, you come up with just that because. Uh, I mean, I mean, throughout your readings, it's... you've probably like that's really yeah, good. that's really nice. Oh, well, thank you. Very I really scholarly. appreciate that. It's very, it's very Marxist in nature, um, which a lot of, I, I'm gonna say, like, ninety five percent of communication philosophy and theory is very Marxist in hmm. nature, where you have the bourgeoisie who are in control of pretty much everything, right? And then you have the proletariat that's, like, pushing back and trying to um, Gain. claim yeah. anything of their own, right? And so this is literally just that, but you put the word culture into the middle there, yeah. right? Like, this is... So it can't just be, like, everybody has a TV set and that is popular culture. Because... There's no, like, push and pull dynamic there. Yeah. What is popular culture is what you choose to see on TV mm -hmm. and how you interpret that. Okay. So, like, if I were to try to come up with a current example, I personally find it really hard to find pop culture, let alone, like, counterculture these days. Because, as I assume we're going to talk about, the speed of culture is very fast these days. It's like a two-week life expectancy for something to I don't know it's maybe that's a bit extreme but I'm thinking about phones having a phone itself is not pop culture everyone has a phone but that a lot of of a specific generation are using it for TikTok um and expressing themselves through TikTok that's maybe a pop culture movement yeah that is absolutely pop culture TikTok is not in itself pop culture because you have to remember that when you go on to TikTok, there are corporations who do have their own TikTok accounts. Mm -hmm. And the way that we choose to interact with those accounts, that is where pop culture lies. And the way that people react to those accounts and the way that they make their own content and why they're making that content and what that content says, that is where pop culture I is. I see. Okay. So that's kind of a broad definition um, but we're going to go into some like more philosophical aspects of pop culture, kind of break it down into 
different frames that we can look at it through because there's a lot of people who have said a lot of different things about pop culture, both positive and negative, like optimistic and very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. I prefer to be an optimist myself. Uh, so yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm going to focus on a couple of the optimists. But I think there is also value in looking at what some of the pessimists have to say, because ultimately, I think that when we talk about pop culture and the way that we interact with it, um, having the choice of how we interact with it is more important than just about and anything what we, even what we like actually understanding. do with it, but having the yeah. choice too. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. Because ultimately, you can't get away from pop culture. You just can't. Not unless you're like... I am going to live completely off the grid, no electronics, no books, like nothing. I am just, all I'm going to do is just whittle twigs all day. Like, I think that is the only way that you can actually avoid pop culture. So the three main philosophers that I want to talk about today in the context of like horror movies and how horror movies have become such a huge part of our popular culture is Henry Jenkins and his idea of convergence culture, John Fisk and his theory of incorporation and excorporation, and then a couple of gentlemen called Adorno and Horkheimer and their idea of culture industry. Going into what Henry Jenkins has to say about convergence culture, he basically talks about how Fans take ownership of their favorite media and create communities that create new media and experiences and meaning with each other. The example of convergence culture that he likes to give the most frequently is the Harry Potter Alliance, which, I mean, if we want to talk about, like, J.K. Rowling and her political stance and, like, how that might have affected people engaging with the Harry Potter Alliance... Mm -hmm that's completely different it's kind of aged a little poorly we're talking about like the early 2000s here when he was talking about this but basically it was people who said hey i like harry potter i see you like harry potter let's get together let's do some good in the world and put that harry potter branding on it because that's what drew us together John Fisk and his theory of incorporation and excorporation is that as the masses or the proletariat take what is produced um, and give it new meaning that is rebelling against the bourgeoisie, corporations will then take the items with their new meanings and produce it en masse, thus keeping rebellions and rebellious ideas in line and making them... um, acceptable like culturally acceptable and kind of uh defanging some of these uh new ideas and and not making them dangerous anymore the example that john fisk gives of his theory of incorporation and corporation actually has to do with genes and how ripped genes at one point were like super rebellious because you're taking an item of clothing an article of clothing and you are intentionally destroying it to send a message and if you think about it like the people who wore ripped jeans for a very long time were considered dangerous almost but then once levi's and lee and guest jeans said you know what if people are gonna wear this anyway 
we're just going to go ahead and pre-rip their jeans for them. <laughs> That's when all of a sudden, like, it's it's not dangerous anymore. Yeah. Once you see it on a mannequin at Gap, like, that's it. <laughs> There's nothing implied just... by a pre-ripped gene. There's no, yeah, I get, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, no, no important meaning there. You are just part of the fashion industry <laughs> at that point. And this sounds kind of pessimistic, but it is actually inherently optimistic because when you look at it from that point of view what you're saying is that we still have a choice in the items that we consume and how we consume them and we can choose to give those things meaning yeah and it is unfortunate that like when it is incorporated back into mainstream culture like it kind of loses that yeah. meaning but it's still very cyclical like that is not the end of the way that the masses produce meaning. Indeed. And then the third set of philosophies that we're going to look at um, is Adorno and Horkheimer's culture industry. They say that nothing is original. Every piece of media we consume is based off of a tired, boring formula. And we are all complicit in accepting what we are given. That... We say, okay. <laughs> yeah, we enjoy this thing, but like, it is what it is, and I enjoy it, and I'm not going to be critical of it at all. Yeah. Now, we are going to be releasing two versions of this episode. You can choose either one, but if you are a casual listener, I'm going to recommend that you listen to the full extended edition. That's going to be the one where we kind of talk about the history of horror movies, and we break them down into genres. For this version, if you are hearing this message right now, this is going to be the edited version where we cut that out and we jump right into talking about the philosophy of pop culture and how it applies to horror movies. So the first one that I want to talk about and the one that I know Carmen is most excited to talk about is horror from a convergence culture frame. So just as a reminder, this is where people come together and they bond over shared interests, but then also produce not only new meaning but like actually new content and projects and media revolving around the the original content that they are bonding over mm -hmm. and this is where we really need to talk about what a cult classic is and this was actually kind of a difficult conversation for us to get through because there's so many things that it could mean and there's not really one like set definition when it comes to specifically movies right mm -hmm. so we eventually came to a couple of different definitions and the first one actually comes from Carmen's husband, Michael, who we were just like, I don't know, man, like if let's you were ask, asked to define it like on smart. the spot, yeah. <laughs> he defined it as a movie that has a small following upon initial release, gained more of a following as time went by, and where the initial group was passionate enough about it that they kept it on the radar long enough for it to reach more people. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a really great definition of like the process of it. Yeah. But like when we come to the definition of it, I propose that it happens when people latch onto the themes and symbols or icons from their favorite movies, turning the films 
into enduring landmarks in pop mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know what you think about that, but that's yeah, what the I en- eventually landed on. The enduring part. I like that. Um, it it annoys me in a sense that some cult classics will always be like it, in the same sense that the term classics is applied to a very almost decided a long time ago set in stone set of uh, books and stuff. And like, okay, it, enough people said these were classics that now like the defining themselves as classes classics is perpetuated by them having been classics before. <laughs> but I do think, mm-hmm. I, I do think that it's with movies, it, it might be a little bit of the same thing, but um, yeah, it might be a little bit of the same thing, but we have something like the thing, which upon initial release, like wasn't groundbreaking, but, but it was always as good as it was like the movie didn't change. Um, and why did it take a little bit longer for it to like solidify itself in horror history? Maybe it's just because it was liked by a smaller group of people who, like you said, were passionate for long enough that, um, it's influence stuck around and was able to reach more people. And if it's who, who maybe didn't have it marketed towards them or didn't respond to the type of marketing that it was putting out. Um, which I love for horror because a lot of people, um, maybe, no, that's not true. People love horror. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do think that the people who are um, repelled or just, just really dislike horror don't respond to that marketing for sure. But I mean, if, if a movie is around and all your friends have said it's so good, maybe you might eventually watch it and it reaches a whole other group and type of person that might spread it to their family because I just horror is it reaches reaches all types of people and um it maybe it just needs time a weird movie like donnie darko too which i just watched and it was it was really good like but also hard to hard to receive for sure definitely not um i I mean it was formulaic in a way in the way that like the acts came out you know act one act two whatever but um still very surprising and psychological and weird just weird and just really weird yeah yeah, yeah. I really like the thing as an example of convergence culture in action because if you think about it, we actually play the thing, the game, in our teens. Have you ever played like Mafia or Werewolf? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, there's this element of people looking at the theme of the monster looks exactly like one of us. Yeah. And changing it into something new and incorporating it into freaking party games. And it's funny because like you also look at games like Among Us and that is the Uh thing, the game, right? Um, Before it was ever the thing too, it was invasion of the body snatchers even like the, the, the question of like, who, who is it? Who has it is. Yeah. That's, that's way, that's super old and it's, it's thrilling for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah because there's this element of like well you look like my best friend but are you my best friend Mm -hmm. or are you going to kill me i don't know yeah another just you know maybe not so subtle metaphor for you know losing people to a whole host of things actual illness or losing them to um an ideology yeah, like I said, the zombie, the zombie sneaky kind of thing. That's just it's just begging for to be written. <laughs> there's so much. That's there's true. still so much you can do with it. I mean, look at uh, Last of Us. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry, it's gonna sound like I get hung up on the thing, but I really like it as a an example of convergence culture 
because I don't know if you know this, Carmen, there is a board game that is officially a The Thing board game. <laughs> and I have played it. I should get I should get that. Good. Yeah, I it, should like, get that for Michael. <laughs> and it's good, but it's not as good as playing Mafia with your friends. Oh, yes. Or hopping online and playing Among Us. And the huge difference between the thing, the board game, like the official one, and these other games is the other games were fan created, essentially. <laughs> Whether they realized it or not, like it is a fan creation. <laughs> and another example of convergence culture in action is when people get together and watch Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight. And I personally have never gone to one, but it's something that's on my bucket list because I would love to, like, get into all of the research of, like, what I need to bring with me and how I need to be prepared for a midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Which, even though that movie is so old, people are still like, no, you've got to go watch it with other people in the theater. Yeah. And none of the, like, shouting at the screen, throwing stuff around, doing the dance... None of that was implemented by the studios. That was all fan yeah. created. And that's magic. I Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think, is has more going for it as a cult classic than any other. Because that, uh, like Rocky Horror, that movie has content and characters that definitely aren't like graspable by the community at large. So it definitely, well, at least when it came out originally. So it was definitely embraced by a smaller group of people than you would think at this point in its timeline because yeah it, it grew and it reached more people because it stuck around and if it didn't stick around with those people it might not have made it to this age where it's received definitely with opener arms than before yeah moving on to john fisk's incorporation and excorporation so just again as a little review this is the idea that the masses take the media that is produced or the goods that are produced by corporations and by the people in power and change it to mean something different. Um, something that pushes back against the uh, hegemony, actually. The ideas that are most prevalent in our society. And saying this is not for me um, in the way that it was intended to be but I will make it my own. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about incorporation and excorporation, um, the difference between the two is that excorporation is that process of taking something and giving it new meaning and maybe making a subculture out of it or rallying around this altered version of something that is mass produced and the meaning that it has. Incorporation is when corporations or the people in power then re-take that back. <laughs> and I, like, it's so weird. It's so cyclical that it's like, it, it's taking it back, but also taking it back again and taking away that meaning. So the reason why I wanted to talk about this kind of hand in hand with convergence culture is because I kind of see ex-corporation and convergence culture as best friends. Oftentimes when people come together to create new content around a piece of media, they are also at the same time giving it new meaning. And I am fascinated by this phenomenon that happened a few years ago 
the Babadook and its emergence as an LGBTQ plus icon. <laughs> and it's something that I was like aware of on the periphery. Like I knew that for some reason people were like, yeah, the Babadook's gay. But I had no idea how that came about. Yeah. Do you want to hear Tell how them. it came about? Tell them how it came about. Tell me. Okay. <laughs> so there is a Vox article by Alex Abad Santos that was published in June of 2017 titled How the Babadook Became the LGBTQ Icon We Didn't Know We Needed. And in this article, he talks about how randomly people on Tumblr, because of course Tumblr is where things like this happen, started oh, insisting that the Babadook is gay. <laughs> And people, of course, are pushing back against it because it's like, well, no, there's no proof of that. Like a supernatural entity. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there are the people who are like in on the joke, right? And that's what it comes down to is like, who is, quote, in on the joke? Who say things like, oh, yeah, well, whenever somebody says the Babadook isn't openly gay, it's like, question, question mark. Did you even watch the movie? (laughs) (laughs) That's so dumb. I mean, he created a pop-up book of himself for the drama of it all, another user wrote. (laughs) (laughs) And it all is just, like, obviously tongue-in-cheek, and it's all one-liners, but it just makes people laugh. And I think that that dissonance between people laughing at something that is a horror movie is just so entertaining to us that of course, like, of course people are going to start excorporating the Babadook Mm -hmm. and saying that he is an LGBTQ plus icon. And of course, just because I don't know if it was an accident or if it was an amazing Photoshop or if it was done on purpose, but in December, 2016, a few months after this whole like discourse around the Babadook is gay. Um, an Instagram user posted a picture of a Netflix menu that featured the Babadook in its LGBT movie section, <laughs> like alongside GBF and other people. <laughs> and I mean, if people are not going to latch onto that immediately, then they are now. <laughs> the yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's really good. That, and like, it's- it's so tender and like touching like oh it's who's gonna who's gonna fight against that that hard get like let, let's definitely give them the babadook why not <laughs> mm-hmm. now that's an example of ex-corporation and there's not much that corporations did to kind of like push back against that because it kind of stayed mostly in its own little sphere but there are other examples of how certain subgenres of horror movies start to get popular and how studios react to that. And as Carmen and I were coming up with our list of like horror movies through the years and the history of horror movies, there were some movies that we just kind of had to set aside because it didn't really fit in with all of the other movies of its genre. And we had to look at them and finally give it its own subgenre of creepypastas (laughs) or fireside stories, right? Yeah, 
That was cool. That was so cool when we when when you when we came upon that. It's the, the it's it's just such a part. Of course, they're creepy pastas. The original creepy pastas were always campfire stories. It's amazing. <laughs> and there are horror movies that even if they are distributed by major movie studios, they still have that element of X corporation of taking these themes and changing them into something that is so unrecognizable that the unrecognizability is part of the horror Hmm. and so for me in my own generation i remember the blair witch project when it came out and how that movie was just like not only something that had never been seen before but people were like there is never going to be a scarier movie after this like this is going to be the ultimate scary movie and honestly it really was the scariest movie for a long time yes yeah that that, yes for sure it got under people's skin it seemed real it could have been real there there was there was room for it to be realer than a lot of other horror movies. Just like those stories, you know, the, the creepy pastas that you pass down and are like, you know, my cousin's cousin's friend had, had this happen to him or whatever. And so we see a lot of different examples of this through the years. So creepy pastas, I thought I was clever thinking this, but um, it's definitely also not another hot take. I'm the queen of like lukewarm takes. War of the Worlds. I read that book and it was I, but the movie, oh my goodness, was amazing. But the radio show, it's like oh, yeah. that one, that that radio show. When did that come out? Like the fifties? It. I. We should probably look that up. Oh my goodness, 1938. So War of the Worlds, the radio broadcast, started broadcasting in 1938, and there was little or no warning that this was like a story for entertainment, and it freaked a lot of people out. Um, And it, like, that's not my main point here, but it was one of those, it was one of those original, like, could it be real kind of things, the creepypasta kind of element of... I heard it on the radio, or I heard it from a friend, or no, like, this really, definitely really happened to me. Candyman 2, or if you think about Bloody Mary, like, the games you'd play mm-hmm. with your friends to crap your pants, um, going into the bathroom and in the dark and saying Candyman, or, oh my goodness, so scary. And that stuff, that I was always a sucker for that stuff, because I felt... <laughs> This dumb sense of like kinship with my friends after we were like t- freaking each other out and we did it together and all this stuff. Um, I have a list here. The Hookman car thing. Everyone knows that story. The kids are getting it on in the car and to inappropriate levels and he gets distracted and goes out and there's a hook on the car. There's a They hear that radio broadcast that there's a man on the loose and he tells it, his girlfriend. Anyway, everyone knows that silly kind of um they're email forwards too aren't they like there's so many names for this kind of thing um and the ritual as well which was an amazing horror movie the wicker man and la La llorona is that how you Mm -hmm. say that the 2019 non-american version um those are folk tales those are like the kinds of stories that before all of this in in the earliest forms of civilization you would think that people gathered around and told stories of stories of warning, stories of caution, um, 
they're almost all cautionary tales of, you know, don't go out at night. The monster's out there in the forest or don't have premarital sex or the hookman's going to come get you, which is what um, Friday the 13th is all about. And I had no idea. I watched that. It was amazing. Uh, these are, yeah, these are the, these are old folks, t- folk tales, old campfire stories, which then turned into, you know, the, the stories that we do pass on to each other about the Blair Witch and, and, you know, passing on stories about, or passing on emails about, I guess, I guess my whole point, I, I, I really love this type of horror too, because it's like a type of horror that has lasted a while. It's the, the. I heard from a friend, from a relative, this really happened. Maybe the question is always there and they're cautionary tales and they really bring together a community for whatever reason. Um, everyone, you know, everyone knows about Bloody Mary and everyone is freaked out, but well, not everyone. As kids, everyone's freaked out by it and it like bonds you. It's it's a tribal thing almost, you know? Yeah, for sure. And And because of that tribal feeling, it is separating us from you know, the mainstream from corporations. You don't feel like like you are a member of the masses at that point. You feel like you are in a much smaller, closer, tight-knit community that has given meaning to these stories that no faceless corporation ever could. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately. They try. (laughs) They try. Which is how we get to horror comedies. Mm-hmm. And this is a beloved genre. It, it, as, it really is. It is unfortunate that these are incorporated movies, but they a lot of them are also really good and hit the mark really, really good, really well in terms of like the balance of horror and comedy. So yes, while they're incorporated, um, these are also pretty great movies, but are a result of, yeah, definitely a result of being incorporated and spat back out to what the man thinks that we want maybe right yeah no it's exactly what it is it's the man saying hey we see what you like we're going to take it and add comedy to these movies um not only so that it appeals to a wider audience (laughs) but so that the the teeth are taken away it's not quite so frightening and it's not pushing back well, against the norm quite so much right yeah yeah it's a it's a it's less risky for them to to present it this way but it also it takes a little bit of the pressure off of like oh you know drag me to hell wasn't that scary because we were trying to be funny and it's like an excuse to be tongue-in-cheek about it and maybe not do an amazing job but yeah to also take the teeth away and appeal to more people right and so Like, yeah, I completely agree with you that a lot of these movies I really genuinely enjoy. I love Zombieland. I love Warm Bodies. Yeah. I love Cabin in the Woods. I know people who are genuinely horrified and, like, scared of Cabin in the Woods. Oh. And I just (laughs) don't get it because I am like, no, did you watch it? It's funny. I know. It it's is so supposed funny. to be hilarious. I, and, and yeah, it's rated yeah. R because there is some imagery that you're just kind of like, yeah. ooh, that's kind of gross. Yeah, it's but gory like, for sure. But like, that's just, it's it's immediately offset by just this, this, this stupid hijinks that the cast gets into. Um, and then the babysitter too. The babysitter was stylized in a really comic booky way. And I feel like that brought a lot of humor into it. Like it was very um, fast paced and... Um, 
literally kind of sometimes poppy and snappy and stuff and just very it it kind of took me off my guard with how like randomly silly it would get with its shots and with its random zoom ins and stuff. And that was scary too. Like that one had a lot of gore and I mean, not as scary as maybe cabin in the woods. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, but though they're so much fun and um, there's another movie on here called one cut of the dead. It's a Japanese film and it's like so meta, like, but so up its own butt meta that it becomes funny again <laughs> instead of annoying. Like, you know, you get to meta where it's like, ooh, interesting, then it's funny, and then it's annoying, and then it's funny again because it's too absurd to be anything else. Same with Haosu, mm-hmm. I feel. I, I, I These are really, really good movies, but I do feel I do feel like they were, yeah, definitely made with the intent of we'll get more money in if we mix in this genre. And even stepping aside from horror comedies, I mean, corporations are always going to try and make money wherever they can. So they do recognize that the diehard fans of horror films are willing to spend money in order to get their next adrenaline fix, which is why I find it fascinating. Have Have you heard of the streaming service Shudder? Oh, yeah. I've been mm-hmm. trying to convince myself to not get a um, account because I don't need another streaming service. <laughs> <laughs> but I find it so fascinating. So for anybody that doesn't know, Shudder is a streaming service that has nothing but horror, thriller, and suspense movies. That's it. You are not going to find any like Turner Classic movie jo- dramas on there. You're not going to find any like rom-coms on there. It's all horror. And I cannot for the life of me think of any other streaming service that is like that yeah that is like oh yeah this is specifically for fans of romantic comedies yeah that doesn't it's only the horror fans could could, only only they could sense from horror fans that there was that much demand to see these movies like horror fans definitely they they're so grateful for that, <laughs> but only they could be passionate enough. And as gentle, like I call them gentle weirdos, the people that love those cult classics, only they could be weird enough to like silently demand uh, a streaming service specifically for that genre. <laughs> right. And finally, I think that the talk about um, the streaming services and about horror comedies and the movies that we do, like even though we recognize that there's not really anything unique about them brings us to the idea of culture industry so this idea of culture industry was created by the critical theorists theodore adorno and max horkheimer and they wrote this idea of um, the culture industry enlightenment as mass deception in response to what they saw when they came to the United States and observed the like movies and TV shows that people were consuming. And they were horrified by it. They were very, very pessimistic when it comes to the idea of popular culture because they said nothing is unique. Nothing has any deep meaning to it because all anybody is doing is using the same exact cookie cutter and just, I don't know, putting different chocolate chips into their batter. Like (laughs) it's not a perfect metaphor, but like that's what they were seeing is that not only were the people who were producing content, producing the same thing over and over and over again, but that the masses that were consuming it were perpetuating this Mm. by being very complicit 
and passive in their consumption and not actually pushing back and saying like, hey, we actually don't really like this and we want to see something new. We don't want another source or we don't want another saw five. <laughs> we don't. We- right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that especially when it comes to horror movies, they do have a point. And the easiest thing to point out is exactly that, right? Like, we don't want another Saw movie franchise. I don't even know how many movies that franchise has. I'm pretty uh, sure it's, like, up to 14 or something stupid like that, nah, right? Maybe, like, seven. Um, how many <laughs> Saw movies are... And I say seven, acting as if that's a lower number. Uh, for, but that's still crazy. Okay. Um, ten... Damn, I, that was a lot more than I expected. <laughs> that's, that's too bad. Oh, well. <laughs> but I see where, like, Adorno and Horkheimer would be absolutely, no pun intended, horrified by the horror genre. Because long-lasting horror franchises are, I think, an epidemic. Not only Saw, but if you look at Scream, I think we have, what, it's sixth yeah. movie that came out recently? We've got all of the Halloween movies. We have all of the alien movies. And you can argue that the alien movies are good. And I will not argue back. Uh Like, I know. But still, it's an example. You're right. Yeah. But it is an example of people were like, yeah, the masses really enjoyed this alien movie. Let's make more. Let's not risk something new. It's, yeah, it's not. It's not risky. It's not interesting it's just this is what people are happy with yes and it makes me sad to say that because i watched prey recently oh my gosh the most recent installment of the predator franchise right very good it was so good i know and i want to be able to stick up for it and be like no this is different but let's examine the horror movie story beats for a moment right yes Every horror movie is still the average hero's journey. You have your protagonist who there's some sort of the inciting action. Call to action. That Yeah, there's, there's the call to action. Usually it's that there's some sort of horror out there that they need to fight against. There's the climax where the hero kills the monster, defeats the evil, whatever. And then you have the resolution where you're like, yeah, everything is good. Maybe the hero is scarred a little bit. Oh, but wait, maybe the monster isn't dead. And then it fades to black. Yeah. And then now it plays a super poppy happy song when it fades to black in the credits roll. I don't know what Mm -hmm. that trend, where it came from or what they think it's doing. But (laughs) anyway, go on. (laughs) No, but it's it's that weird notion i think of well this worked once and so we're going to use it again and again and again again yeah so i'm sure i i don't know what the original horror movie was that ended on a poppy song um or the original trailer for a horror movie that takes you know the trend i'm talking about that takes a children's song and slows it down and puts it in a minor key they just want contrast. And they want contrast for sure. They want something close to you or nice to be contrasted with the not nice to make the not nice seem not nicer, you know? Mm-hmm. I get the and reason, but I don't respect it. 
<laughs> yeah. You know who else I don't respect? Who? Is M. Night Shyamalan. Oh. Oh, my heart. <laughs> I, like... I, let's be honest. He's the poster child for culture industry, right? Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. I think maybe he saw that one thing, one thing really worked for one of his oldest movies, and he definitely was trying to do that over and over again. And the reason why I say that he's the poster child is because... I believe that Adorno and Horkheimer would look at him and say, listen, I know that you have everybody else fooled thinking that you did something interesting and new with that stupid, he was dead the whole time twist at the end of The Mm -hmm. Sixth Sense. But he was not the first person to add a twist on the end Mm -hmm. of a movie. And it's become an expectation now, not only in horror movies, but across all genres, that there is going to be some sort of twist at the end. Yeah. And I, I, it's gotten to the point where I really appreciate a movie that just, that does, I mean, the, the whole have a twist at the end itself is a formula, but movies that are just simply scary and just, like, um, The Lost Boys I watched recently, and that one doesn't, that one doesn't really have a twist. It alludes to something the whole time, but it's not, it doesn't come across as a twist that like floors you. It's just, it's just scary for its own sake. Again, without having to contrast it with, you know, expectations for something. Like we expect pop or lullaby, pop songs or lullabies to be nice. So hearing it in a horror, like trailer is really weird. The same thing. We expect a certain, um, timeline of of events in a storyline and when we are thrown off the expectation itself is a good it makes it seem more horrifying and weirder and more uncomfortable yeah so i know this is kind of like a depressing note to end on but like i said at the beginning i did want to bring up that popular culture i think is overall a very optimistic process that we all engage in on a daily basis I am personally of the belief that even when we do see movies like Prey, for example, going back to that example that I just used, people still are creating these amazing fan arts of the main characters in that movie and of the landscapes that you see in that film. And I think that there is significant meaning to people seeing a young woman of color as the hero of that movie Hmm. and not only interpreting that meaning but also giving that movie meaning that they may not have seen before and yes adorno and horkheimer there is nothing new about the story beats of that film it's like the oldest story ever yeah but it is my opinion that that shouldn't really matter that ultimately it comes down to what are the people engaging with and what meaning are they giving those movies yes i mean in the postmodern world we currently live in yeah of course there's no new ideas um but i i totally agree there are there are still reasons to enjoy well-made media um and they'll take the same story like the, the prey is just prey and hunted and hunter right and the like that's that's the uh, that's the essence of horror um and it's okay that that's at the is is that that, it's okay that that's the same idea that every horror movie does that like 
we're either being stalked in the woods or accosted in our own homes or chase trying to chase after answers that like we can't get or being chased by some weird malignant force it yeah i would say the same thing it is okay <laughs> and as long as we recognize that that that's what's happening it's fine who cares like a good movie is a good movie a good piece of content is a good piece of content and maybe clichés exist for a reason like maybe they exist because they hit specific places in a lot of people's hearts you know mhm yeah yeah, so thanks for coming on this journey with us as we talk about horror movies, as we try to put a good grade on my final project and so I can pass the class. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> um, Please, professor. No, but thank you, Carmen, for joining me, and thank you, listeners, for joining us. Um, I'm sure we have that one listener in Rhode Island that is just like, oh, God bless you. Holy crap. They posted a new episode. (laughs) (laughs) They put us out of their mind for so long because it had been so long, but we're back. We're back. Whoever you are. Here's some content. Eat it up. (laughs) We will absolutely talk about I I am serious about this. If that listener in Rhode Island reaches out to us and is like, I want you guys to talk about this. 100% 100% that is the next episode that yeah, we will do. And we will, we take, will release it in two we, weeks. We will take any of your suggestions. Dear <laughs> dear listener. That's so But funny. also all listeners. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that Carmen and I are really excited to get back into the podcast. Um, I am hitting the summer here, which means that I am going to have a little bit of extra free time to do more podcast stuff. And we're really excited to rename the podcast. We already and... have some very tempting ideas. I'm so excited. And we'll ha- when we change it, we'll have to do a whole episode about what we changed it to, obviously, since we started this whole thing with an episode about Kanye. <laughs> we have to. Yeah. And I think we're going to do a little potpourri episode. I have a lot of things on my Google Notes of things that I want to talk about yes. that don't deserve a full episode, but, but have to be bring a shout out. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So listeners, if you have anything for our potpourri episode that you'd like us to include, let us know and we will do that. So thank you listeners for joining us. I'm Audrey Stratton. I'm Carmen Radford. And this has been Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>